All right, we've got the uh, same announcements we had the other night, plus I'm going to add one. Uh, the men's prayer breakfast still going to be a week from Saturday, 7.30 in the morning, followed by the deacons meeting. Then the uh, pre-trib conference is scheduled for December 7th to 9th in Dallas. And God surprised us last night. Dr. William Watson, who is just fabulous, and I don't know how old he was, but he's not too old or younger than me, and a fabulous scholar. He's just a wealth of information. And in the middle of the night last night, the Lord said, come home. And he got out of bed and collapsed, and he was instantly gone. And he was des- he was supposed to speak this year, and a lot of us were really looking forward to it because it was on you know dispensational theology prior to the Reformation. So it's written, and I th- think it's supposed to be published in a book, but but nobody had the grasp of knowledge that Bill Watson did. And he and I were constantly chatting with each other about politics and other things on the on on uh, Facebook. So uh, just a great great man, solid defender of the faith, and uh, he's with the Lord now. So that see, we we can't take life tomorrow for granted because the Lord may take us home at any moment. We always have to be prepared for the rapture, one way or the other, so to speak. Uh, we'll not have Bible class that Tuesday, December 8th. I keep going to keep repeating that. And also we'll have our Christmas Eve service at 6.30 p.m. on the Thursday night prior to uh, Christmas for Christmas commun- communion uh, service. This afternoon I sent out an email related to Bible memory. I will be using verses from the New King James Version, but you can change them to whatever version you think is easier for you to memorize. Now, those of us who learned and memorized with the King James Version have always said or thought that, wow, it's easier to memorize than the King James Version. And it is. And I'll tell you why. The King James Version, the translators had kept an eye on the rhythm and the beat of the English words they chose. It was written to be read out loud. And so it has a rhythm and a cadence that really does make it easier to remember it. Not, it depends on where you are. Now, I heard from someone this week who said, I'm not learning any new verses. I'm working really hard just to keep the ones I've memorized in the past. I can relate to that. It seems like the ones I remember, I'm glad I memorized all these verses when I was a kid because they stick. But the ones I've tried to memorize in the last 10 years, I continue, like the Christmas story in Matthew and Luke, I've re-memorized those every year and it just doesn't stick like the ones that I put in there when the, when the hard drive was virtually empty. So that's important to uh, get those into your kids and grandkids early early on. Well, we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer because we need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. And if you've been watching the news, you probably need an extra two or three minutes, but you should have started earlier. So after a few minutes uh, of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Uh, Father, we're just so thankful that we have you to come to. We're thankful for another day to serve you. We're thankful for our health and the opportunity to get out and to come to Bible class and to study your word and be refreshed by the truth of your word, to be reminded that you are still on the throne. You are in your sovereignty overruling the affairs of mankind and letting things work out according to your plan and purpose. Father, we're thankful that we can trust in you, and though we look at the chaos around us, and and sometimes it leads us to anger or to worry or to fear or anxiety, nevertheless, we know that when we come back to your word, that there something settles in our soul, and we have a peace that surpasses all comprehension as we focus on the eternal truths that, as Peter has written, provide stability for us. And there is not stability in the thinking of the world, for it is built on shifting sands. So, Father, we pray that as we study tonight, you'll open our eyes to the truth of your word and that we might be encouraged by it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So open your Bibles with me to Second Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at the first three verses tonight, and I've entitled the message, Plastic Words Are Destructive. I bet you didn't know they had plastic back then. Well, you have to stay tuned to find out that they did. So you just thought that was a recent invention. Okay, we're looking at this, Plastic Words Are Destructive, As I pointed out last time in our flyover, there's three basic divisions in 2 Peter. And they're easy to remember because it has three chapters, and they're chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. So in the first chapter, we learn that God's will is for us to grow to spiritual maturity. It's only when we grow to spiritual maturity that we come to have discernment. Discernment is the result of, like, like a lot of wisdom, is the, is the result of making some bad decisions sometimes. We learn a lot of things just from the bad decisions that we make. And that leads to some maturity if we're humble and we're willing to learn from those bad decisions. But discernment scripturally comes first and foremost from the Word of God. And in our information age, there's often a lot of idolatry related to information and related to knowledge. But we have to remember that wisdom, which is a corollary to discernment, discernment is being able to apply the word in a skillful way, that's wisdom, and in order to see the the, the stealthy ways that false teachers and false ideas seek to masquerade as truth and being able to observe that. And that just doesn't happen overnight, but it comes from wisdom. And we have to remember that wisdom in this time, uh, as always, is not, wisdom is not, um, is not based on, is, is not the equivalent of knowledge, and knowledge is not the equivalent of information. A lot of people confuse wisdom with information. But uh, you have to have information to have knowledge. You'll get a lot of people in some circles of Christianity who are really anti-intellectual. What that means is they're against the use of reason in your thinking. 
and the use of thinking they want to feel God. They want to feel what God wants them to do. Their decisions are based on emotion. Their decisions are based on how it makes me feel. They will decide to do something because it just felt like the right thing to do. And that's just making an idol out of your emotions. And as believers, we have to let reason that is based on Scripture, not independent reason, but reason based on Scripture, uh, drive the train and not emotion. When emotion drives the train, there's going to be a train wreck. And so we have to have information. We have to learn what the Bible actually says. That's why it's so important. That's why I go through the Greek. That's why I explain things. Because when I tell you that this verse needs to be translated a certain way, I want to try to demonstrate that that why it needs to be translated that way. When you look on the page and say, well, my translation says this, and the, these other five translations say basically the same thing, why do you say it means something else? And so we have to understand, we have to have the right information. In Bible study methods, that's called observation. We have to know what the words mean. We have to know what the grammar means. We have to understand all of these different concepts. That's one of the reasons that uh, I've taught Bible study methods in the past and one of the reasons that I go through the things I do. So information isn't knowledge. Just because you have a lot of information doesn't mean you know anything. There's a lot of extremely ignorant people out there who have a lot of information at their disposal. but in, So to have real knowledge, it's not just information, it's not just data points. So information isn't knowledge, but you have to have information to get knowledge. And knowledge isn't wisdom. Just because you know things and you know true things doesn't mean you know how to apply them. You have to learn. Uh, wisdom is a skill. That's what that word chokmah means in the Hebrew. It has that idea of skill. And so once we develop, as we develop skillful living, what we're also learning is discernment. I always like the Hebrew word for discernment. It's like my last name. It's Dean. That's how it's pronounced. And it means to decide between Okay, that's how I memorized vocabulary when I was first-year Hebrew. And so you have to decide between this and that as to what is right, what is wrong, and not to be sucked into wrong ideas just because you feel like it or you like the individual's personality or you don't like somebody's personality. There were so many people who voted in this election just because they don't like Donald Trump's personality, and uh, my favorite analogy is that I don't care what the doctor's personality is. I want the doctor who's going to accurately diagnose whatever problems I might have and, and, and what the solution is. I want a mechanic who can fix my car and not cost me a lot of money but fix it appropriately. I don't care what his personality is. I don't care how he makes me feel. I don't care what he looks like. You know, and there are too many people in this world because of television and movies. We want the fantasy. We want the package that looks good and uh, sounds good and makes us feel good. But often that's just this passage refers to it as plastic words. It fits into a mold and it can be manipulated. And that's a real problem. So we have to understand the truth 
is not always attractive. It's not al- doesn't always come in a Hollywood packaged or Madison Avenue packaged uh, uh, package. So uh, God's will is for us to grow to spiritual maturity so we can have uh, develop wisdom and discernments. And that's the first chapter. Second chapter, second chapter is about God warning us about false teachers. And this is a, I'm going to give you an illustration tonight that, that impacted everybody here, whether you know it or not. And it happened within, within doctrinal churches about 20 to 30 years ago. And it just fits exactly with what, um, I had forgotten all about it. And I was having a conversation with somebody this last week and then I was reminded of it. And I thought, boy, that, that really fits. That's this exact category of this kind of false teaching. But a lot of believers who had listened to a lot of good biblical teaching for decades got totally blown off course because they had a lot of knowledge, but they didn't develop wisdom. See, it's spiritual maturity doesn't come from the knowledge of doctrine. It comes from the learning the application of doctrine. And then in the third chapter, God refutes specific false teaching uh, in light of the return of Jesus Christ. So the general mandate is what's at the end. Grow in the grace and the emotion of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, it doesn't say that, does it? Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in this second chapter, I broke it down into four sections. First is just first half of the first verse, the certainty of false teachers and their destructive heresies. And then the second section is 2.1b to 3, which we'll cover all this tonight, the destructiveness of deception. And 3b, the certainty of their judgment. And that is why we're going to take uh, some time because each of these examples is going to take us into understanding Old Testament episodes. And we're going to get into the angelic conflict. It fits into uh, what we're studying on Thursday night, what we'll be studying starting this Sunday morning. And uh, since we finished Psalm 30 this last Tuesday, we're going to go to Psalm 82. And we're going to connect a lot of dots and connect a few verses that I have always... They've been on the edge of my thinking, but I've never really pulled them all together. I haven't changed my uh, interpretation or understanding of those verses. I've just come to understand how they fit together a little differently than I did before, or I wasn't even putting them together. So that's what's going to happen. And then uh, uh, we'll see the the certainty of their judgment and the self-destruction of their arrogance. So we'll be doing this angelic conflict special that's going to start Sunday morning. It'll go to Tuesday night, next Thursday night. And I'm thinking about maybe a Thanksgiving special, so that's going to cause a little, uh, that'll be something different the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And then we'll go Tuesday and then probably the next week all the way up. It'll probably take 8 to 12 lessons. Uh, There's just so much, and it's so important. So we're looking at the certainty of false teachers and their destructive heresies. And verse, uh, let me just read the first three verses. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom, uh, their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be 
blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. So God warns us about the certainty in the first part of this book, uh, of this verse, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. There's a certainty there that there will be false teachers among you. Now, what's interesting is this is very close in content to what Jude says in Jude 3 and 4. I wanted to bring Jude, the first two verses are the salutation of Jude, but Jude 3 and 4 introduced almost the identical situation. And in my view, Jude is written later than Second Peter. There's some scholars who think it's the other way around, but Peter is writing ahead of time to his congregation, which is in the same general vicinity as those to whom uh, Jude is writing. And Jude says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, they understood the doctrines of salvation, justification by faith alone, that you only have to believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins and God will impute to you his righteousness and declare you righteous. And it has nothing to do with you. You are not given infused righteousness, which is a Roman Catholic heresy, the false teaching that came up within the Roman Catholic Church, that somehow you are changed internally. But you're not changed enough because if you don't change yourself enough, then you'll end up in purgatory for who knows how long, and nobody can tell you because they don't have any idea. They don't know how much righteousness is enough to get you into heaven. So he says, we had a common salvation. They were clearly saved, but they're confronting false teachers in their midst, some of whom might be genuinely saved, some of whom may not be. Same as in Peter. He said, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you, and I really wish they would use some synonyms for these words. In this sense, exhortation is a word that isn't one that we use a lot. He's challenging them to do something. That's what that word means. It means to to preach sometimes. It means to encourage sometimes. It means to uh, encourage somebody to do something. So that's a challenge. I challenge you to contend earnestly uh, for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, that word contend earnestly is an important word to understand. If you look at what this verse says, they are to contend earnestly for the faith, not some other faith, not for any faith, but for the faith. It presupposes a set body of truth that is inviolable. You can't break it up. You can't change it. It all has to go together or nothing will go together, and that we have to contend earnestly for that. It is a Greek word, epangonazomai, which means to exert intense effort on behalf of something. So it's a conscientious act. You are determining that you are going to learn how to contend for the faith, how to engage in a struggle to defend and to promote uh, the body of truth that is in the Scriptures. 
And this body of truth was once for all delivered to the saints. That means that it's not changeable. We don't come along in each uh, decade or each century and reinterpret it for the next generation. It means the same thing. The same thing is true for the U.S. Declaration of Independence and Constitution. It means what the authors intended it to mean, and it doesn't mean what people today want to do. It's not a living document. The Bible's not a living document. But the same liberalism, which rejects absolutes, liberalism always rejects absolutes. It's always a revolt against God. Liberal theology rejected the authority of God in the Scripture, and they said that the Scripture is not a book by God to man, but it's a book of human thinking about God. And once they did that, you can make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. And and that's just really sad because it, it, it ends up destroying their concept of truth for those who hold it. And so when it goes theologically, what you have is you no longer have the Bible as your absolute authority. You've shifted your absolute authority from out here at your Bible to in here. It's not what did the author intend for me to do. It's, well, do I think this is worth doing? I become the ultimate authority. And so the same thing is what's happened in law. You have the Constitution which sets out our form of government, but people don't like it now because it doesn't let them do whatever they want to do. How many times in the last six months have I heard about mayors and governors and uh, police uh, uh, police chiefs and others who have said, well, we're just not going to do that. And it's really clear that the Constitution says they're supposed to do certain things. The Constitution and our body of law has set out what we're going to do in certain circumstances and what's required. And so it's not about how you feel and what you think. It's not about our opinion at all. We have to all agree. Bible says if two do not agree, how can they walk together? And this is a problem we have why this country is so divided is because there's uh, one section that still holds to a Judeo-Christian worldview, even if they're not necessarily believers. They still believe in some kind of absolutes and the authority of, of the law and the importance of law and order. And then you have others who don't like this system, don't like law and order, and they, uh, they want to replace it with something. And what they want to replace with something is whatever they think makes them feel good and will assuage their guilt complex, and uh, all of this will just lead to destruction. So we are to contend earnestly for the faith, because, and we have to understand it in terms of its original intent, dual authorship, God the Holy Spirit, and the human author. Uh, They're not in conflict. God the Holy Spirit worked through them, as we've studied many times. And then we have the warning in Jude 4, for certain men have crept in unnoticed. And this is a word, par ice duno, we'll see some of these in a couple of slides, but it means to slip in stealthily, to sneak in, to to camouflage yourself, disguise yourself, 
so that people don't recognize that what you are saying and what you are doing is really leading to something that will destroy what they believe in or will overturn or destroy the church or its operation. And so they sneak in. And the typical MO that we see here, that's the modus operandi, is that they'll start off with a question. Well, maybe this isn't quite what we need to do. Uh, This is what we need to do. And they may find justification for that in what some theologians have said who are fairly well respected and, and mostly orthodox. But then as they, they, they have a pattern, they have a strategy, as they change one little thing and another little thing, then eventually they've changed enough to where uh, they will come along with the, real, uh, with the new doctrine, new idea, and that because you've already changed A, B, C, and D, you're going to go right along with E because you've already compromised in those first uh, five or six uh, statements. Uh, so this is the, the idea here. And he says, certain men have crept in, they've snuck in, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. That's what he's going to talk about. See, he sets up, you, you've got false teachers coming in, and what characterizes them is they're ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness or lasciviousness, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to see that that's basically describing the same group that Peter is describing. So they are marked out for condemnation. Judgment is certain. And then in Jude verses 5 and following, he's going to go through a list of different uh, certain judgments that occurred in the Old Testament. And so we will go through some of the same ones in Second uh, Peter chapter 2. So he says, but there were also false prophets among the people. Now when he says among the people, we have to recognize that he's talking about, the, about Israel. He's talking about the Jewish people. He's referencing the Old Testament. The, the, the uh, uh, first statement begins with a but. It is a contrasting conjunction, and it is contrasting what is there in the in the previous uh, previous verse, talking about the holy men of God who were moved by the Holy Spirit. So he is saying that these false prophets will secretly bring in destructive heresies, and the idea here is not that so much that they secretly uh, introduce something, though that conveys the idea. It is that it has the meaning of coming alongside. They will come alongside and become a part of your group and like they just believe everything you do, and then they will gradually slip in some new ideas. And so this is the idea there. So we put the two ideas together. And they're, they're, they're secretive, they are operating on a plan, and their goal is to completely transform the belief system of a, ch- of a local church and to destroy it. Uh, this is the same idea that we see in uh, Jude. Now look at what, what they're saying. It's, it's the, the heresy that Peter's talking about and the heresy that Jude's talking about is primarily one, although it included other I- wrong ideas, 
denying the Lord who bought them. So they're denying, it's a Christological heresy. That means a heresy related to Christ. They're denying the deity of Christ. They're denying denying the fact that he could die for our sins. They're, They're denying critical, foundational things about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And both of them, Jude 4 says, they deny the only Lord God, and our Lord Jesus Christ. So they are denying his deity and that he is God. So we see that they start off, but there were false prophets among the people. First, our Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 states, know this first, that no prophecy of Scripture that's talking about Old Testament is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man. man. Humans, these guys didn't make it up. They didn't generate it from within their own soul. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, we studied this back at the time. This is the idea of a wind blowing on a sailing vessel that's moving it along a course of action. So God, the Holy Spirit, is the a one who is supervising, he's the superintendent guiding what they are writing. Now, when we look at this concept of false prophets, we must understand that here he's talking about Old Testament prophets. They're the prophets among the people. They are the Old Testament Jewish uh, prophets. And they there's a lot that's said about false prophets in the Old Testament. And I just want to take us through a couple of verses. If you want to look at a chapter, hold your place here and turn with me to uh, Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah has a lot to say about false prophets, and I'm not going to um, go through all of it, but I want to just hit some high points so that we understand the mechanics. Isaiah 56 11 says this, Yes, they are greedy dogs. Talking about false prophets, so right away he's saying the same thing that comes out in Second in Peter, that they're motivated by money. And remember what the Apostle Paul said. He said that, that greed or covetousness was idolatry. You are worshiping money and the things that money can buy or the power that money will bring you instead of worshiping God. Uh, They are greedy dogs which never have enough. They're insatiable. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. Now, Jeremiah uses the the concept of shepherds many times to apply to the the, uh, false prophets. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain from his own territory. It's all about what the power they're going to get, and it's all about the money they're going to get. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go through an analysis of the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel, but that is exactly what is going on here. These are false teachers. They're all over the television. They have unbelievable amounts of money, and they spend that money on on jets and on cars and one who is uh, unfortunately has some influence in the White House uh, one time was uh, a question because she had a 24-carat gold toilet in her bathroom. I mean, this is not what they're doing. It's all for their own gain. 
Jeremiah 6.13 and 8.10 repeat this idea of motivation by greed and covetousness. And both verses are a lot alike. In 6.13, God says, Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, the them refer to false prophets. Everyone is given to covetousness. They're driven by materialism. They're driven by greed. They're driven by getting all they can get and not caring about those who don't have. Now, this is, these are the passages people always go to to support socialism or social justice. And the Mosaic Law recognizes private property and it recognizes the right of everyone to pursue success and to have uh, wealth. However, when it's done correctly, that wealth is used then to help others. But that's up to the people, and it's never the government's responsibility to take from one who has worked for it and give it to someone else. That's called theft in the Bible. Because if you have worked for something, the hours of your labor are uh, transitioned into into money, and it has a dollar value. Your time has is worth money. You've heard the same time as money. Well, that the, the amount of time you spend doing something is worth something. But you have a responsibility on how you use that which God has given you. But it's not the government's job to come in and tell you, no, you need to do it this way and you need to do it the other way. God's the one who's going to hold you accountable. It's the first divine institution. And here God is judging them because they've all violated their first divine institution. They've all been irresponsible and self-absorbed with the way they use their their money. And so they have ignored those who uh, had legitimate needs. So he's they're, they're all motivated by what they can get out of it. They're given to covetousness, and everyone deals falsely. See, the greed leads to an ethical problem in that they are deceptive. Uh, chapter 8, verse 10 says the same thing. Everyone is given to covetousness from the prophet even to the priest. So the religious leaders have departed the truth of God's word. They've given themselves over to the prosperity idols of the ancient world. And these were the fertility gods and goddesses. They're worshiping Baal, the Asherah, and it involved just horrendous uh, sexual activity and sexual sin, perverted and immoral, and it was all designed to motivate the gods to somehow uh, give them uh, productivity and to have a fertile, uh, fertile soil and to make more money. Jeremiah 23, 12 and following just says a tremendous amount. It starts off in verse 1, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Later, it refers to these shepherds as the prophets. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people, You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings. There's accountability that if you are a false prophet, then judgment is coming, and God will account for it. Now, you and I may not see it. The people at Israel's time say, well, it just seems like they're getting away with it. But God is saying, no, they're not getting away from it. Their judgment will come. Peter's going to say the same thing in, in the third verse. 
God goes on to say, I will set up shepherds over them. This is talking about the future who will feed them and they shall fear no more, nor, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking. That's in the uh, future uh, kingdom. Verse 11, he says, for both prophet and priest are profane. They're common. They're not holy. The opposite of profane is holy or set apart to God. And he says, yes, in my house, I have found their wickedness. And then he says in verse 12, Therefore their way shall be to them like the slippery ways. See, God will find them out. He will expose their sin, their evil, their deception. And I saw a headline the other day that 70% of Republicans believe that this, there was fraud and corruption in this, in this election. And we just have to put that in the hand of God and let God expose the evil. And we know that he does that, but he will do it in his way, in his time. And we just hope it's tomorrow, right? Um, For I will bring disaster on them, God says, the year of their punishment. Of course, that's going to come in the form of the Chaldeans. And I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied by Baal and caused my people of Israel to err. See, they, they are causing them to be destroyed. And that's what happened when the Chaldeans came. You you remember we talked about Habakkuk on Sunday morning and that Habakkuk went to God and he said, God, these people are horrible. They need to be judged for their sin. And many Christians have been praying that. And then God said, all right, I've got these cartels over here on the border. We're going to let them all come in. And Habakkuk went, no, Let's not do that. That's not a good idea. I've got a better idea. Those people in the cartels, they're really vicious and, and mean, and they, they'll destroy people. But see, God is going to, knows that there are some times when, when sin in a nation needs a cleansing, and it's not pretty or fun. Jeremiah twenty three fourteen. Also, I've seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. Now, the committing adultery may be literal. It certainly occurred in the fertility religions, but it also could be spiritual adultery in that they are unfaithful to the covenant God of Israel, and therefore they are uh, committing adultery, which is illegitimately joining themselves to these these false gods. In verse 21, God says, I have sent these prophets, yet they ran. Uh, that is running to evil. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, remember, hearing his words means to hear and do, uh, and ca- caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. So false prophets were a major problem for Israel. Now, false prophets are mentioned in the Gospels. They're not mentioned except in relation to prophecy in the in the epistles really so in Matthew 7:15 Jesus prayed or Jesus said beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravenous wolves now he's not talking to us he's talking to that generation and he's talking about the false uh, prophecies that were going around with all the various uh, false religions within Judaism at, at that time. And he's talking to his disciples. The context was the Sermon on the Mount. So he's talking about what's going on at that present time in Israel, which was still under the age of Israel, the dispensation of the law. Matthew twenty four eleven says uh, Jesus is prophesying 
It's in the Olivet Discourse, and he's talking about what will be going on in the tribulation period. He says, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. He's not talking about what's going on in the church age. He's talking about what will happen during the time of the Antichrist in the future tribulation period. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 24, for false messiahs, And false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Notice he doesn't call them false signs and wonders. Uh, They're they're going to do things that that actually happen. And so people will follow them and be deceived by them. But 1 John says something a little different. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And he's stating that as a historical reality, that there have been many false prophets that have gone out into the world. So let's learn a few things about about what is meant by prophets and prophecy in the New Testament. First of all, there are no false prophets in the Old Test in the New Testament in the church age because we don't have prophets in the church age. So if somebody comes along and says they're a prophet, you know, right away, or, or an apostle, you know, right away, that that they're in self-deception because uh, because there's no apostles and no prophets in this church age. Uh, there were prophets and apostles at the beginning of the church age, but only in its infancy to give us the scripture. The focus at the beginning was establishing the new church, let it get on on both legs and stand up and go forward. And once they were given the whole counsel of God in the New Testament, then they were no longer in need of revelatory gifts. Second point is the New Testament gift of prophecy was to be temporary. In 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 13, a passage we've studied on, and I'm not going to go through all of the details. They're available on on the Internet. In fact, it was fascinating when I was in Tucson a couple of weeks ago. There was a a wonderful lady who's coming out of a charismatic Pentecostal background who came up to me the, the second night and said that she had not only had to listen to, maybe it was the third night, the third night, I think, and she said that she had uh, list, had to listen to both of my lessons twice when she got home, but then she had gone to the website to see what I said about tongues. And she said, I have been in the midst of maybe transitioning to this church. I play the organ or piano at her uh, Assembly of God church, and I have had some questions about their theology, and I listened to what you said, and I realized... I was given the Holy Spirit when I was saved, and God's not going to take the Holy Spirit away from me. And so I made a definite decision that I'm leaving my church and I'm coming here. So that's what the Word of God does. So love never fails, Paul says. But whether there, he mentions three gifts here prophecies, tongues, and knowledge. But notice what he says about tongues is different from what he says about prophecy and knowledge. He said, whether there are prophecies, they will fail. They'll be abolished. That's the word. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. The idea is they'll just die out. They're no longer needed. Whether there's knowledge, it will vanish away. You know, I hate it when they change it up. It's the same word that they will fail. Both of them, prophecies will be abolished, knowledge will be abolished. You have to always translate the same way so you can connect all the thoughts accurately. And then he says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. 
Notice it doesn't say we speak in tongues in part. Knowledge and prophecy are partially why you have a little bit of information here, a little bit of information there. Paul had some, Peter had some, John had some, but you don't get all the picture and put all the pieces in the jigsaw puzzle together until the canon of Scripture, the 66 books, are together and finished. So he says, now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect comes, then that which is partial will be done away with. So the word that's translated perfect means to complete something. So he's, what he's basically saying, but when that which completes the incomplete, that's the idea of partial, it's incomplete. But when that which completes it has come, then that which is partial and incomplete will be done away with. And that's that word again. It's the same word. We'll be, look at this. Will be done away, um, will fail, and will vanish away are all translating the same form of the same Greek word. But the translators use three different English phrases, and it just confuses people, and you miss the whole point of the passage. So prophecy was to be temporary. Once, what did they prophesy? It's the word of God. Once the canon, once God has said all he's going to say and given us enough, there's not going to be any more prophecy, and there's not going to be any more uh, gift of knowledge. Third, prophecy is always listed second to apostles in these New Testament lists. Are all apostles, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 29, are all prophets, see the order, and then goes, are all teachers, and then are all workers of miracles. But see, it's always apostles and prophets. It's not prophets and apostles because if it's in that order, which it is in a couple of places, when it's in the order of prophets first and then apostles, that's chronological. Prophets from the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament. But when it's apostles and then prophets, it's talking about the New Testament gift of prophecy. In Ephesians 3, 5, which we've just recently studied, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Okay, those are New Testament revelatory gifts. And they're listed in that order in Ephesians 4.11. We'll get to that chapter eventually. And he himself, that is Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor teachers. So you have four ministries there. But apostles and prophets were foundational. That's what he said in Ephesians 2.20. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Not literally. Again, that's another one of those metonymies where the person who wrote a, a book in the Bible is put instead of stating the scriptures. So they're built on the foundation of what the apostles and what the prophets wrote. That's the foundation of the church. And so when you build a building, you only lay the foundation once. You don't lay a new foundation on every floor. In other words, in every century, you don't need to relay the foundation. Once it's laid, it's done. So apostles and prophets were first century, and that it ended by the end of the first century. Fourth, once the canon of Scripture, canon means the rule or standard. Once the canon, it refers to the collection of, of the 66 books of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. 
Once the canon of Scripture, the 27 books of the New Testament were completed, then these revelatory gifts ceased. Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, talking about the Old Testament, has in these last days, that's the church age, you just thought that maybe now we're in the last days, but notice writer of Hebrews says the last days started with Jesus' ascension and the beginning of the church. The whole church age are the last days. Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So we have false prophets among the people in Israel in the Old Testament, even as there will be false teachers. It's pseudo from false. We borrowed that word in, in, in English. And didaskalos, the noun for teacher. It's a false teacher. And the verb is the verb meaning to be or exist, or it's translated as will be because it is a future tense. Now, that's important because there's so much ink spilled over whether what's going on here. But here, Peter is writing to this audience, same audience he wrote First Peter to, and he's saying, there will be false teachers among you. But later on, he uses a present tense. So people say, oh, well, see, when he uses this future tense here, he doesn't mean it's in the future. And there's some that say it's in the future only, and others that say it's uh, present only. But it's future to the ones who he's writing to. But these false teachers are already on the scene teaching their false doctrine. How do we know that? Because he's telling us what their false doctrine is. He knows that they're already teaching this in some places, but it hasn't gotten to his audience yet. So these false teachers eventually are going to come in and come alongside them, and they will secretly bring in or bring in by coming alongside in a deceptive way bring in these destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. They're denying the deity of Christ. Now, the word here for Lord is not the normal word kurios. It's despotes, which refers, we, we get it into English as a despot, but that's not the idea in the Greek. It's just talking about someone in authority. And it's the Lord who bought them. And we'll talk about the meaning of that in a minute, but it's redemption. They have been redeemed by the Lord, and they bring on themselves swift destruction. So there are six things that are said here. The first is they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And when they do this, they, they, the people don't see it coming, and, and then they may hopefully... Uh, wake up and realize something has has happened, but but not yet. So he says, second, that they will deny the sovereign Lord who bought them, who redeemed them. Now, this indicates, A, they could be saved. Some of them could truly be saved. And it also indicates that, that they have been bought, uh, that the price has been paid. And so that is one of the strongest passages, we'll look at it in a minute, strongest passages for unlimited atonement, that Christ paid the sin penalty for every human being. And then it says their destruction will come quickly. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to come um, 
in the near future. This word uh, taxes is used a lot of time. Jesus is going to come quickly. What it means is not that he's coming tomorrow or he's going to come tonight or he'll come before I finish teaching tonight. What it means is when he starts to come, it's going to come fast. When their judgment comes, it's going to come on them swiftly. They're not going to have time to run away from it. That's, that's the idea when you look at this particular term. Fourth thing we learn about it is many are going to be deceived and follow them in their licentious ways. Now, one time I had somebody ask me, what does licentious mean? I said it means lascivious. Well, what does lascivious mean? Licentious means that you think you have a license to sin, that because Christ paid for our sin, then it's paid for, so whoop-de-doo, I can go do whatever I want to do. That's also known as antinomianism, but all of those words have more than two syllables. Uh, licentiousness means you're using grace as a license to sin. Lasciviousness means that it's related to sexual lust. And antinomianism means that you don't really have to uh, obey any of the absolute commands of Scripture. Now, I'm going to tell you a little story. We are going to make it through tonight. Some years ago now, about three decades ago, there was a man who came into one of the doctrinal churches. And this man had an education, but not in theology. And apparently he had a somewhat winsome personality, and he befriended the pastor and got to be close to him and gained his trust. And they were talking, and they would talk over certain doctrines and things. And in the course of things, he convinced this pastor that you really don't need to confess sin. First John 1 John 1.9 really doesn't mean that, pastor, that, that people need to confess their sins. And so there were a number of other doctrinal pastors who were influenced over the course of a year or two by this teaching because this first pastor said, I don't believe in confession of sin for believers anymore. And see, you know, the problem with that is that in 1 John, there's only two ways to interpret 1 John. Well, actually, there's going to be three. The first way is that that you look at it as a contrast between believers and unbelievers. Those who walk in the light and those who walk in darkness are interpreted as believers versus unbelievers. Now, that is consistent with Reformed theology, and it is consistent with lordship theology. The other way to interpret it is that John is warning them not to become rebellious believers, that the contrast here is between believers who walk in the light and believers who are just living their life in sin. They're walking in darkness. And so to continue walking in light, you have to confess your sin. But this particular pastor apparently didn't understand those things, and I'm not faulting him for that because First John is one of the most difficult books to interpret. And I spent a lot of years reading everything I could get my hands on on both sides of the question, what is First John really, really all about? The problem is that the third interpretation is a hodgepodge where you take, okay, well, I look at this section in chapter 1, and that's contrasting believer and unbeliever, and then I'm going to look at chapter 2, and that's describing one kind of believer versus uh, uh, another kind of believer, and then you're just inconsistent. 
And I know of several pastors who don't think that you need to confess your sin. And usually the argument ends up putting all the emphasis on confession because they think that, well, you don't need, the only time we're told to confess is here. No, the command everywhere else from the very beginning of Genesis is to be cleansed of sin. We have to be cleansed of sin because when we have sin in our life, it it creates a barrier. It breaches that partnership of walking in the light with God. And so we have to confess, confess our sins. Now, what happened is that this individual then moved to Houston and he had already gained a following of some people who were in Houston and he started a church. And that church didn't last very long because it wasn't long before he began to teach some other things. And as he began to teach some other things, uh, it eventually, it took way too long, but it eventually became clear to some people that he really had gone way out of bounds. The first thing he did after saying you don't need to confess sin anymore, and that went on for about a year or so, is that you really don't have to obey all those commands in Scripture. They're just things that tell you how to do things. God put them there to see if you were really grace-oriented. So you don't have to uh, obey those commands. They're just there to see if you're going to be legalistic or not. And he created this whole system of hermeneutics that was of interpretation, which was just bizarre and kind of mystical and allegorical. And then some of the people who were in that church went on the mission field in two or three different places and caused all kinds of problems. And it was all because of this poisonous stuff that this one guy taught. And, and it, it just and it, it split up some, some doctrinal churches and created some other problems. But fortunately, by this time, this guy started getting into some real overt heresy about the person of Christ and the church that he had started here in Houston folded. And, and um, sadly, it destroyed the spiritual life of some people. That's what, 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 what Peter says here, is that they are destructive heresies. They either are destructive because uh, it destroys... Your, your ability to understand salvation, you don't get the gospel, you don't have eternal life, or it destroys your spiritual life. And so this is, a, this is a major problem. They are destructive heresies. Now, you'll also read in some commentaries that heresy didn't mean this false doctrine uh, in this early on, but the whole context is talking about believing wrong things, so de- like de- denying the Lord who bought them. And the word there is the same word you find in other passages for redemption or the verb redeeming, agorazo, from the root agora, which refers to the, the marketplace. That's the Greek word for, for going down to the, to the supermarket where you purchase things or going to the slave market where you would buy a, a, a slave. And so it came to be understood as the referring to the fact that we are purchased by Christ out of the slave market of sin. And now they're denying that that Christ did that. They could have been saved, and now they're living in carnality. Are there, I think, in some some of the situations, a lot of them weren't saved at all. And they bring on themselves swift destruction. But what's important to understand is this one of the strongest passages that talk about unbelievers were bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. They were redeemed. That is called unlimited atonement. And there's two other important passages for this. One is in 1 Timothy 2, 2 through 5. 2, 1 starts off that we're to pray for all men. 
but especially for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. That's what we need to be praying for in terms of political decisions all the time, that they will not make decisions that will make it difficult for us to live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness that is related to spiritual growth and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. See, the doctrine of limited atonement says Christ only died for the elect. And therefore, God only elected those for whom he planned, only elected those whom he planned to save. And and what that means is that, that God wouldn't desire all men to be saved because he didn't die for all men. That wasn't the plan. And so this verse makes it very clear that God desired all men to be saved, so he made it possible for them to be saved, so Christ paid the penalty. Remember, there's three problems. One is we're born with the sin penalty. Christ paid the sin penalty. But the other two problems are we don't have life and we don't have righteousness. So first of all, we have to have life. God regenerates us. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. God made us alive together in him. We're regenerated. We're given new life. Uh, Before we were spiritually dead, we were alienated from the life of God. And the last thing is God gives us righteousness. So we can't go to heaven unless we have three things. The sin penalty paid for, life instead of spiritual death, and righteousness. And so Christ solved the first part of the problem because he paid the penalty for sin. The second and third problems are resolved when we believe in Christ. And that's why John's, John writes in John 3.18 that those who do not believe are condemned already. Why? Because of their sin. No, because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 1 Timothy 4.10 is another passage, says, for to, you, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. doesn't say the Savior of the elect. He is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Very important. Christ died for everyone. Now, the second verse describes what what the result of their false teaching. Many will follow. Many are attracted to this because it's the easy way. The wrong way that appeals to our sin nature is always the wrong way. The, The one that says, look, you don't need to confess your sin. You can just live however you want to. You don't have to obey all those commands in Scripture. All your sin's paved for. Just go out and enjoy being a sinner. Now, they usually don't make it quite that plain, but that's what the implication is. And your sin nature and my sin nature have no trouble picking up any rationalization to justify our sin. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I I don't need a whole lot for my sin nature to go, oh, isn't that a good idea? Let's go do that. That's its natural orientation. So, and and, uh, here it doesn't use the word destructive. Uh, It does in verse 1, but here it's translated in the New King, King James Version as destructive. It's the word asogeia, which means licentious or lascivious and has to do with sexual immorality. So what we're seeing here is that sexual immorality and antinomianism are clearly part of this 
false teaching that is coming that way and and people just love it because then they don't have to deal with trying to uh, control the lust of the flesh remember what what peter said in the first peter he said that the lust of the flesh war against the soul they are destructive you want a clear path to mental illness which is really a bad term but to emotional instability and self-destruction, it, it's just give in to all your lust patterns. This verse is translated two different ways. Uh, I wanted to put these up here. In the Holman Christian Study Bible, our Holman Christian Standard Bible, it says, many will follow their unrestrained ways. See, that's, that's better than destructive because there, there's no restraint on your sin nature. Their unrestrained ways and the way of truth will be blasphemed because of them. But unrestrained doesn't really get to the heart of it. I like the NET here. Many will follow their debauched lifestyles. So the false teachers are leading them into debauchery. And because of these false teachers, the way of truth will be, it's literally blasphemo, that's the Greek, but the Greek word means to slander or ridicule. And that's what they're saying. People look at those Christians. Look, they claim that uh, Christ died for their sins and they're so holy and everything. And look, they, they sin just like everybody else does and just as overtly. And then verse 3 tells, connects the dots as to what happened. And again, it uses the word deceptive. By, uh, or uses a word that, that has the connotation of deception. By covetousness, they will exploit you with plastic words. That's where you get the plastic idea. Plastic comes from this Greek word, plastos. It means something that is fabricated, something made up, something that is pressed into a mold or shaped to fit what you want it to be, okay? And that's what people think they can do with the Bible is they're going to interpret the Bible in whatever way uh, makes it more comfortable for them to live. And so they're going to shape the Bible to a way that enables them to not have to struggle with their sin nature. And, of course, Paul back in Romans 6 says that we're to put to death the lust of the flesh. And that's that's the constant battle we have. We never quite kill it, but it's always a struggle. But we never, we're never to give up, even though we may commit the same sin over and over again. I always laugh about people who say, oh, God, I'm so sorry I did that. Uh, I'm not going to ever do that again. You don't bargain with God. Confession doesn't mean bargain with God or say you're sorry. It just means to admit that you did it. Because God's sitting up there. He's omniscient. He says, I'm going to, I know you're going to do this 25,635 more times. So don't try to pull the wool over my eyes and tell me you're never going to do it again. You'll do it 18 more times before the day's over. So by covetousness, they are out to gain. It's not just coveting money. It's coveting power over people. It's coveting the attention. It's coveting all of the things that will come to them because of, of the influence they have over people. And then it says, uh, for a long time, their judgment has not been idle. See, the judgments in the works is what Peter is saying. And just because uh, you don't see it doesn't mean it's not coming. It is coming, and it is definitely coming. Their judgment hasn't been idle, and their destruction does not sleep. 
So that destruction is going to come, and that will come up again when we get to chapter 3, uh, verse 9. Today we have lots of heresies, and many of them all relate to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have various heresies that deny the Trinity. Jehovah's Witnesses come to mind because they do, do not believe in the full deity of Christ. They'll tell you, well, he's a God, and they'll lowercase it because God the Father created him at some time in an eternity past. That was a heresy from uh, the 4th century called Arianism. You have others that are, have Holy Spirit heresies, such as the Pentecostal and Charismatic movement. Uh, you have salvation errors where you ha- always ha- are putting some kind of works in there that you're going to earn God's approval. And sometimes you put those works on the front. You have to believe and do something, or you put it on the end. You have to believe in Jesus, but you won't ha- know whether it's the right kind of faith unless you have these works that are part of your life all the time. And if you ever say anything bad about Jesus, then you weren't really saved. You didn't have the right kind of faith. Those are all heresies. And it gets into all kinds of other things. We have the health and wealth and prosperity gospel. You have the various kingdom now heresies where we're going to take uh, take uh, control of the situation uh, for the kingdom and we're going to claim it for the in the name of Jesus. And all of this stuff is just nonsense. It's paganism. And so that is what leads people to, it just destroys their life because it's not built on truth. Now, what's going to happen next in this chapter is that, is that Peter is going to show that their judgment hasn't been idle, that God has judged these kinds of sins in the past and he will judge them in the future And he will give three examples of judgment. The angels at the time of Noah, uh, the judgment of the flood at the time of Noah, and then the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And then his picture of his grace delivering righteous Lot in verse 7. So it'll take us a little while to work our way through these Old Testament events so that we can come to understand their significance for this passage. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together this evening to be refreshed by your word and know that we need to know the truth because the truth is what will enable us to understand error. And Father, we need that wisdom, we need that discernment so that we are not sucked into false teaching. Never should we be arrogant enough to think that we know enough that 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 won't happen to us. Father, we continue to pray for our nation. We pray that you will expose those who are evildoers, those who have sought to corrupt the uh, election process. And we pray that those who would want to bring riots and destruction into the nation would be shut down and that you would restrain their evil. And above all, Father, we pray that we might live a life no matter what, that will glorify you and that we will continue to walk and be light in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.